Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Greetings, imagination connoisseurs. Once again, it is I, your Duke of Dope Discourse, Robert Meyer Burnett. And I invite you to watch and listen to the Designing Hollywood podcast, brought to you by Martika Abera and the great, legendary Hollywood costume designer, Marilyn Vance. I am afforded the wonderful opportunity of co-hosting the show. If you are interested in the magic of Hollywood, the design of Hollywood, the clothes of Hollywood, watch the Designing Hollywood Podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts from or find the video version on YouTube. That's right, the Designing Hollywood Podcast. Why would you ever want to miss it, especially if you love the movies? I had a dream. Hashem told you to dance in a tango contest? A dancing teacher wants to tango with you? No! Critics are raving about Tango Shalom. It's clever and inventive, with bright chemistry on and off the dance floor. You're a lunatic! A funny and thoughtful family film with a warm heart and a playful spirit. From the director of My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Oh, that's my Fernando. Tango Shalom. In select theaters now. Observations with Robert Meyer Burnett. Well, greetings, Imagination Connoisseurs. Once again, it is I, your Duke of Dope Discourse, your Master of Fun and Wonder, your Viceroy of Verisimilitude, of course, your Evangelist of the Imagination, and finally, as yet undefined, your Existential Mr. Rogers, that's right, me, Robert Meyer Burnett, and I am once again Robcasting it. You, you Imagination Connoisseurs, you members of this, the post-geek singularity community, this is Observations episode number 700. And 49, this is, of course, the show about something. And I'll tell you what that something is. Uh, thanks to longtime viewer, great letter writer, and all-around wonderful human being, Just a Brown Girl. That's how she goes by on this channel. Uh, she invited me, contacted me to go with her yesterday to the Warner Brothers lot, actual Warner Brothers, to go to the studio to a Producers Guild event where they were showing Dune. And afterwards, they had Denis Villeneuve, they had John Spates and Eric Roth. All three of them, of course, wrote the movie. Donald Moat, who did the makeup, 
he was there. I had interviewed him for the Designing Hollywood podcast when he was in Budapest working on uh, Moon Knight, the Moon Knight TV series. So it was great to finally meet him. Ran into my old pal Charles Bender, who was the executive producer on The Hills Run Red. He and I were college roommates 35 years ago. Uh, he was he was there with his lovely wife, Barbara. And I even had someone come up to me, uh, a young whippersnapper. I didn't get his name, but he thanked me for my Superman Returns documentary, which, to be honest, has never happened. Well, maybe it happened a long time ago, but it hasn't happened in quite some time. So whoever you are, sir, you... Uh, you made my day coming up to me inside the Steve Ross Theater and tell me how much you liked that Superman Returns documentary. It meant a lot. Now, my history with Dune, I've talked about this before. I Dune was one of the first books I got from the Science Fiction Book Club. And I joined the Science Fiction Book Club when I was like 10. But I didn't... I got... Uh, the first book I got was the Foundation Trilogy. It came... You ordered four books and it came. It was a, a fifth book that you got. And Dune was one of the first four books that I that I ever got, but I didn't read it till I was in the sixth grade, I think, the sixth grade. And it was a little bit over my head, to be honest. I mean, I, I pretty much understood all the concepts. I didn't I didn't really know everything that Frank Herbert was referring to. The book was, of course, written in 1965. And before I get to my thoughts on the movie, I know, because people are like, well, just get to it. I just want to know what you thought of the movie. Well, that's not this show. But uh, I did want to read an article that I found in the Los Angeles Times, written by Scott Timberg from 2010, uh, April of 2010. That's right, this is an 11-year-old article, but I figured I would read it because it gives some context. For those of you who don't know, Dune has been filmed three times, uh, first by David Lynch in 1984. It came out in 84, and uh, obviously uh, the Sci-Fi Channel did that and Children of Dune. Also... Uh, there's the great documentary about Alexander Jodorowsky's uh, Dune, which never got made. But I wanted to start, so people have background about the novel. If you, if you don't know what Dune is, I figured I'd start here. Uh, again, this was written by Scott Timberg in the Los Angeles Times, and it is from April 18th, 2010. Half a century ago, a middle-aged newspaper man with a few obscure books to his name sat down to pursue a pet obsession based on a story that had never sold. The ensuing 1965 novel, in which his agent had no confidence, sagged at first. But within a few years, it was a pop culture sensation, and this year, this is again in 2010, on its 45th anniversary, Dune is one of the science fiction's best-known books and probably the field's best-selling novel. The mystery of why some works continue to speak to us is heightened with a book like Dune, Frank Herbert's Desert Planet epic not only remains popular and well-known, but this tale has anticipated many of our contemporary concerns. Its saga of dueling great houses, the fight for a rare resource, and a young aristocrat's coming of age was set 200 centuries in the future. But it grapples with numerous issues pressing in the 21st. The fragility of the environment, the shortage of fossil fuels, the threat of religious jihad, the unpredictable effects of mind-bending drugs... It was the first sci-fi book that everybody in the mainstream culture was reading, recalls Northern California novelist Kim Stanley Robinson. By the way, if you have not read his Mars trilogy, I highly recommend it. But it wasn't like Kurt Vonnegut's Cat's Cradle, which was essentially a mainstream novel. Herbert was doing hardcore sci-fi in the anthropological and world-building sense. People went for its huge backstory taking off from the Prophet Muhammad's life. 
that the novel was planned and researched during the Eisenhower and Camelot years before widespread Muslim fundamentalism, OPEC, mainstream narcotics use, and other issues that seem to inspire the narrative underscores the author's prescience. The book also helped galvanize the environmental movement. Set on a world far from ours, its rich description of a water-poor planet is credited by some as the inspiration for Earth Day. Because of its huge following, fast-moving plot, and opportunities for special effects, Dune has repeatedly attracted other artists. It's been the source of a video game, a board game, numerous posthumous sequels, and several adaptations. And though a 1984 film was widely considered a failure, and two subsequent Sci-Fi Channel miniseries were made, Paramount recently selected a director for a big-budget movie. Uh, the inspiration. I am hardly... I, I am a political animal, Herbert said in 1983. And I never really left journalism. I'm writing about the current scene. The metaphors are there. The novel was sparked when in the late 1950s, Herbert flew to Florence, Oregon in a small chartered plane to write about a U.S. Department of Agriculture effort to stabilize sand dunes with European beach grasses. The author was struck by the way the dunes could move over time like living things. Swallowing rivers, clogging lakes, burying forests... These waves can be every bit as devastating as a tidal wave. They've even caused deaths, he wrote his agent, beginning an article. They stopped the moving sands that was never published. Despite his agent's indifference, Herbert dug in. He was fascinated by the project and superimposed the history of another sandy place, including, including Arabs and Islam's Muhammad, into an adventure novel originally titled Spice Planet. When he hit his stride, Herbert was writing 70 pages a week. At the time, science fiction was at the tail end of its golden age, dominated by brisk tales of interstellar war and planet hopping. Several icons of mid-century were doing major work. Robert Heinlein, for instance, published his campus edition, his campus sensation, pardon me, Stranger in a Strange Land in 1961. But the field's energy was flagging, and the magazine market had imploded. A 1961 fanzine was titled, Who Killed Science Fiction? Herbert and his gargantuan manus manuscript were turned down by dozens of publishers, but eventually accepted by Chilton, a small press known for auto manuals. Herbert's story of young aristocrat Paul Atreides, along with maps, appendices, glossary, and epigrams, ran to more than 500 pages. After almost two years, the book took off in 1967. The novel was a hinge between old and new, says Annalee Newitz, editor of science fiction blog io9. Dune functions nicely as a transition between classic sci-fi focused on space opera and astropolitics of the kind Isaac Asimov and other Golden Age writers wrote, and the next generation, she, she says. In the 1960s, we saw a shift away from science fiction focused on space travel and space politics to anthropology. You aren't rushing between planets, you've landed on one and you talk about that one, including its biology and sociology. Writers had imagined life on other planets and written of environmental catastrophe, but the scale of Dune was unprecedented, comparable, as Arthur, Arthur C. Clarke said at the time, only to Lord of the Rings. The planet was something you could really feel, says Kim Stanley Robinson, whose latest novel is Galileo's Dream. Herbert spent a long time outdoors. You can see it in the writing. He's seen things you can only see if you've been there. It's physical, and it's expansive. Still, the novel's pulp roots show. Parts of it are almost poetic, says Rob Latham, who teaches science fiction at UC Riverside. But the villains are comically ridiculous. Baron Harkonnen could have been played by Sidney Greenstreet or Charles Lautensay, swishy. And I don't know what we're supposed to think of the eugenics. 
There are all sorts of half-baked ideas in there. Thanks to the novel's success, a plan for a Dune film began as early as 1971, when producers wanted David Lean, whose Lawrence of Arabia is in some ways a precursor, to direct. Another version would have enlisted Orson Welles, Salvador Dali, Gloria Swanson, Hervé Villachez, and Alain Delon in a 10-hour epic before financing evaporated. Today, the 1984 movie by David Lynch and starring Kyle MacLachlan and Sting has gained cult status. An endless shoot in Mexico City in the dunes of Chihuahua engaged 1,700 people. At the cost stre- As the cost stretched, Lynch's film was sliced to two hours and he was denied final cut. Roger Ebert, not known for his vitriol, called the movie a real mess. Incomprehensible, ugly, unstructured, pointless. Lynch all but disowned the movie and rarely discusses it in interviews. Herbert, however, deemed Lynch's Baroque film a visual feast. The current adaptation comes from the wreckage of a project that was to be helmed by Friday Night Lights creator Peter Berg with Charlie's Theron as Jessica Paul's mother. After considering Neil Blomkamp from the political... With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Critical sci-fi sleeper District 9 and Neil Marshall, low-budget hit The Descent, Paramount opted for Frenchman Pierre Morel. Chase Palmer, a relatively unknown writer, will work with an existing screenplay by Josh Zetmer. Morel, director of Taken and From Paris with Love, has discussed his aim to make the film faithful to the novel, which he says he's read ten times. Optimists hope that the director can do for Herbert's work and maybe its sequels what Peter Jackson did with Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, finding a balance among action, story, and ideas. It could also, of course, be cheap. If they want to reawaken it as a film franchise, says io9's Newitz, it's hard to imagine that it would not just be action-packed with a video game tie-in. For a book that's enjoyed such critical and popular success and continued interest from Hollywood, by the way, the movie they're just describing here never got made, obviously, the legacy of Dune is not especially clear. It's not quite New Wave, which developed in the late 1960s, not as an incident to cyberpunk, nor a precursor to the recent space opera renaissance. It's some kind of singularity, says Latham. Dune both channeled and stoked a greater environmental consciousness in sci-fi. Important later novels by Ursula Le Guin, John Bruner, and Octavia Butler looked at planetary ecology. The original novel's most evident influence is on the science fiction tradition of world-building, for which it raised the bar considerably. Writers and scientists have been envisioning other planets for a century, but not this deeply. The rituals by which the Fremen, the planet's desert people, deal with water are especially well-imagined. Many consider Robinson's trilogy about the terraforming of Mars the best-realized exercise in the form since Herbert's. Robinson calls Dune a big influence. The book showed him, he says, that you could talk about the future of the wilderness. It gave me courage. I knew that people were willing to read at great length and that that could be... That world could be a character. But Herbert's future vision of a galaxy with numerous populated worlds seems out of step with the deflated present. The future, says Robinson, doesn't look to be off-planet in any near-future time frame. A less encouraging descendant of the original Dune novel is the large number of other Dune novels. The first sequel, the much slimmer Dune Messiah, came out in 1969. Herbert published the sixth of the original series, Chapter House Dune, in 1985, 
And though Herbert died the following year while recovering from cancer surgery, Dune's universe has been extended by his son Brian and journeyman writer Kevin J. Anderson. Some think these posthumous prequels and sequels have confused the legacy by dumping less serious books into the marketplace. They've gone from something profound and thought-provoking, says Newitz, to being something like candy, like the Star Wars novelizations. Whatever the book's influence and implications, the original continues to attract readers. It sold an estimated 10 million copies. To Latham, it remains a weird kind of in-between thing. It culminates a pop-pulp tradition with ridiculous villains and a pseudo-medieval empire set in outer space and some bad writing, he says. Then it has these 70s elements, environmental concerns, drugs, and mystical experiences, and somehow it managed to coalesce all of them. So I thought that that was sort of just to give people background that don't know anything about Dune and what uh, what it's all about, you know, what 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 captured the imagination. And um, I got to see Denis Villeneuve's new version of Dune. And I have to say, first and foremost, I found it truly enthralling. Um, I I loved every minute of it. Uh, again, Denis Villeneuve has now made three, well, let's call three big science fiction movies. I'd call them Epic, Arrival, Blade Runner 2049, and now Dune. And I would say of all the filmmakers that have ever worked in the science fiction filmmaking medium, he brings peak verisimilitude to everything that he does. There is a reality that he's able to create that I don't know if I fully understand how he's able to do it. From the images of the alien spacecraft arriving at the beginning of Arrival, the way they seem just to hang in the sky with, obviously, the, the, the effects plates used real photography of the surrounding areas where these ships were uh, to create something strikingly beautiful. Blade Runner 2049 does the same thing. It, it uses incredible miniature photography, but it creates a world that you absolutely believe in. He's able to... I don't quite know how he does it, to be honest. I mean, you don't really notice that you're looking at anything that's CG. It looks real. I mean, even 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 the, the feel, the sound fields, uh, the way the movie feels, like literally feels when you watch it. The All of his movies, whether it's Sicario or Prisoners or... Uh, in Cindy's, I mean, it's it's um, he has he has quite a, a, just a way about creating a reality that no other filmmakers. I mean, even a Christopher Nolan, I don't think is as successful at creating the realities, but also the stylized realities. But still, I mean, Christopher Nolan goes for he 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 really does try and create a realism, but. But Denis Villeneuve creates a realism, but at the same time provides those sensory thrills that we want from our science fiction movies. Um, and he gives us images we've never seen before, the scope and the size of things. And I mean, my God, the sound field, I thought Blade Runner 2049 was one of the most incredible sounding movies I'd ever heard, with not just the thunderous pounding of Hans Zimmer's score, but everything, all the effects, all the sound fields, Dune is is perhaps even more so than Blade Runner 2049. Uh, it's astonishing. I mean, that's why somebody tweeted to me uh, earlier today, this morning, well, you know, Rob, uh, 
You know, movies are the same, whether you're watching them on your phone or your iPad or your computer or a screen or at the movie theater. They're all the same. I couldn't disagree with you more. Um, they're not. And when you see a film, remember, uh, a film like Dune, the sound field, the Atmos sound field that they've created with, I don't know if it was, I don't know how many tracks, I would assume 13 tracks, maybe 14 tracks that we're hearing, uh, if you're not watching the film, if you're not watching Dune in a theater that's got this kind of a calibrated sound system, we were on the Warner lot, so the, the projection and sound doesn't get any better. You have literally the best on the planet Earth at Warner Brothers. It doesn't get much better than that. And it was overwhelming. It was overwhelming to the senses. You'll never get that at home, no matter what kind of a system you have at home. I don't care how much money you've spent. Um... You just don't have the fill that you don't have the kind of room that they have in a bigger theater. I mean, maybe some people do, but but I've been into a lot of really great, impressive home theaters here in Los Angeles. But it was it was overwhelming. Uh, I mean, the, the the sensory nature of what it was like to watch and and experience Dune. But as I left the film, I have to say that from obviously for me. It's always character and story. Movies are only about character and story, and the visuals and the feeling, the sound design, all of it, well, in, in service of what? It has to be in service of great characters and a great story. Now, I know the books, and I know the story of Dune. I know where the story of Paul Atreides goes, and it ain't some white savior myth, let me tell you that. And the, the thing that I was keenly aware of when I watched Dune is I was wondering if you don't know the story of Dune do you get what's happening and let's get the elephant let's 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 get to the elephant in the room right away it was incredibly frustrating to have the film literally just kind of end it doesn't end on a cliffhanger uh it basically ends uh like at a commercial break even though there's not one there where it's almost, it's almost, even though it's extended out to two hours and 45 minutes, it's almost really act one. And I, I, I would imagine that for many moviegoers, Dune, if you're not swept away by it, it would be a, a frustrating experience because you're wondering, at least I was, and I know the story, but I was thinking about what do other, what do other filmgoers feel about this? Does it work for them? Are they getting... Are they getting out of this what, what they're supposed to? And and I'll, I'll give you an example. In the David Lynch film, it opens early on that we meet characters that we do not meet in Denis Villeneuve's version. And we don't meet any of the Spacing Guild members that are so important, that are using the spice to mutate so they can fold space. We don't meet the Padishah Emperor Shaddam IV or Princess Erlan, his his daughter. And one of the things that that early scene establishes is it's almost an exposition dump, but it makes you realize that, okay, in Dune, it's the story of two families, the House Atreides and the House, I used to say Harkonnen, but they said Harkonnen. Um, uh, so take your pronunciation, I guess. But in this book, they're the Har Harkonnens, not Harkonnens. Uh, I just always thought Harkonnen sounded more Star Trek-y, so that's what I've always said. But I'll go with Harkonnen, because that's what they've said. So House Atreides and House Harkonnen have been 
um, feuding for centuries. And you don't really get a sense of this, but House Atreides, the Landsrad, all of the different great houses, that's what they're called, the Landsrad. Um, Duke Leto Atreides, or Leto, Duke Leto, uh, is rising in popularity, and his popularity is threatening the Padishah Emperor's control over the Landsrad. So, uh, the Harkonnens have been controlling the planet Arrakis, or as we know it, Dune. Now, on Dune, they mine what is called spice. It's literally spice that's that's coming out of the sand. Spoiler alert, uh, it's created by the giant indigenous life forms that live on Arrakis, the giant sandworms. And as they move through the sand, their bile is what basically is creating the the spice i won't get into there's, there's there's some few things if you want to read the books i'll save i don't want to i don't want to give away a lot of, of what's going on but so these sandworms are very deadly they can be 400 meters long they're the big creatures of dune and also there is a group of people uh the fremen that live in the deep desert let's call them the indigenous people although a lot of them aren't necessarily indigenous but they they live in the deep desert and the Harkonnens control Dune at the beginning. They control the spice mining. It keeps them uh, very wealthy. And in the movie, you don't really see this, but the Harkonnens are in league with the Padishah Emperor who wants to get rid of... Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Of House Atreides. So basically, he says, he gins up a, a, an excuse for the Harkonnens to leave Arrakis, and then he demands Duke Leto and House Atreides take over and take over the spice mining on Arrakis, when really it's just a plot where the Harkonnens uh, can launch a sneak attack and destroy, um, destroy House Atreides. Uh, and while all of this is going on, there is another faction the Bene Gesserit Sisterhood, and they are a group of women. Let's call them monks. They're kind of like the Space Vatican. And they bas they basically control the world, or the world's... Uh, I mean, they do things like they play the long game. They'll go and they'll plant fake prophecies and allow those prophecies to grow and flourish for sometimes thousands of years on planets. So they'll, they'll come up with this idea that one day your Messiah is going to come. And they will make up, um, make up prophecies and seed them onto planets, so they can then manipulate, like through religion or belief, they can manipulate people. And at the same time, they are also manipulating bloodlines. I won't get into it, but 
they're manipulating bloodlines and they want to find the Kwisatz Sadarak, the, the super being. Basically, they're trying to manipulate through their own their own bloodlines. Uh, they're trying to create this super being that will become the liberator of the galaxy, sort of. And I, I, I won't get into I won't get into uh, any more of what's going on. You you can discover it all. I just gave you a bit of the broad strokes. Uh, some of the people you're going to meet. I just wonder if Dune for me has any drawbacks. I would imagine if you don't know anything about the story, it would feel a little bit murky. Um, this new version, this new iteration, because you don't have the Padishah Emperor, you don't see him, you hear about him, but you don't actually see the Spacing Guild. I see, or we see you behind it. We don't have any of that. So, and when they introduce the Harkonnens, you you they're they're very specter and wraith like, and you can tell these are these are bad guys, and uh, they're almost comically bad. Uh, because they're so over the top, but also awesome. And and I just wonder, uh, do pe- are people going to get this? You know, Are they going to understand what it is that they're seeing if you don't know about Dune? But uh, I, someone, else, someone else is going to have to tell me. By the way, Roger H. sends me a Super Chat sticker. Thanks, uh, Raj. Thank you, Raj. And also, mm, sends in a Super Chat sticker, a tip. Thank you very much. Um, but all of that being said, uh, I was completely captivated from the very beginning of the film. I I was completely transported. I, I, I It felt to me like they had gone off-world and shot this movie on Arrakis. And it was the design of everything. You know, for the, for the first time... Um, we saw ornithopters, and the ornithopters are what they fly around in on Arrakis. And one of the things I was like when I was a kid in the book was that the ornithopters, they really, they have flapping wings like insects. They look like dragonflies in the movie. And obviously, David Lynch at the time, he didn't have the effects. He couldn't make the ornithopters look any good. Um, go back and look at the Hawkmen in Flash Gordon. It was hard to make wings and things like that look good without CG. But now, like everything else that Denis Villeneuve does, my God, the design work on everything, the size of everything, the world building that happens, it's just, it's extraordinary. And I, again, it really worked for me, knowing the story, I was very enchanted by it all. And, you know, you'll notice, because it's based on on the book, that there's a lot of the same scenes between... Um, that that between the Lynch version and uh, this new version and the Sci-Fi Channel version, because there's a lot of touchstone moments from the book that you remember that they recreate, and I don't think I don't think some of them necessarily land as well as they did even in the Lynch version, um, because you heard people's inner monologues in the Lynch version that would help sort of explain what's going on, and to be honest, I mean I don't know how they would have I don't know if how Denis Villeneuve could have could have recreated that without copying what was going on but I do feel that a lot of the world building a lot of the cool things that I really liked uh were sort of missing because they're breezed over so quickly and there there have been changes made from the script that I read and reviewed on this channel to the final film version and that's that's to be expected there's a lot of oversimplification I'm sure during the editorial process um things were removed but for the most part I mean I have to say that I, I think this is a stunning achievement in science fiction filmmaking. 
It is not perfect. I think, yes, it goes on very long, especially the last latter half of the film. Um, <laughs> scenes definitely take their time, and the problem is it's not leading anywhere. I mean, the story's leading anywhere, but we're only getting we're only getting half the book. So by the time you get to the end, you're wondering, well, wait, is that it? Because it seems people say, well, it's 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 half the book. It's really just the first act, um, and I I will let you all discover that on your own. But I I think that that definitely was problematic in terms of of enjoying the film, and and I um, I mean I look I was I enjoyed it, but it felt it really did. I think only having half the book really hampers the narrative and. It's it's because the movie is so long and they really take their time building the world and creating the tone of the movie and it is it is very dreamy and it's very ethereal. When I was watching the movie, I did I felt seldom have I felt so transported in the theater. Blade Runner twenty forty nine certainly did that. This does the same thing. There's a call it a formalism, I guess, to Villeneuve's work, but it definitely is transportive and it is very hypnotic. And uh, if you allow it to sort of flow over you. I uh, I think you're gonna have a great experience at the movie, but movies. But again, I would go see this in the best possible picture and sound you could see this in. Find the best projection. If the bulbs are too dim and the sound isn't up loud enough or whatever, uh, it's not gonna be. I think nearly as effective. But I don't think it's a perfect film. I don't think it's a perfect adaptation of the source material, but it is wonderfully realized, and I recommend it very very highly. And was I disappointed by it? No. What I am disappointed by is that in six months I can't see the rest of the story. And I hope that it does well enough that we're going to get to see the rest of the story because it would be... <laughs> the movie goes to a pretty cool place. I mean, if you know the story, uh, as I've said on the show before, they call this Dune Part 1, but I, I heard it, uh, it was going to be Dune, uh, Dune Prophet, and then Dune Messiah, which is the second book they were going to do a three-parter, and by God, they should have just shot it all at once. And uh, I know that nobody would want to do that anymore because of the uh, volatility of the marketplace, and you never know. What if the first movie doesn't do any good? You've got two more movies you've made, but I think in the case of Dune, to know that you had a second film coming out uh, might be helpful, but we shall see how it does at the domestic box office. It's doing all right in Europe, but I... Um, I... Um, I was thoroughly delighted watching it, and I found it very transportive and very inspiring as a piece of literary science fiction, literary adaptation. Um, it's it's certainly, uh, you watch something like Dune, and I couldn't help but think to myself, man, I wish somebody treated Star Trek with this amount of respect. But they don't. I know. What can I say? Dune does get a thumbs up from me with some qualifications. Um, but I do think people are definitely uh, going to uh, enjoy it. And I would suggest going to see it again at the biggest theater you can with the largest or loudest sound system. Uh, this next letter, my first letter, comes from Ruben Hilbers. Ruben Hilbers says, Hello, Rob and members of the Post Geek Singularity. I wasn't expecting to write this letter. But sometimes life throws you a curveball. I was planning to take a break from letters because I was not happy with the quality of my letters. Too much silliness, too much filler, not enough philosophy. Ruben's Rule 1. Always be your own harshest critic. 
Maybe it's a Dutch slash Calvinistic thing. Maybe it's just me. But then the potential IATSE strike appeared on my radar, and I just couldn't help myself. So let's move on to the million-dollar question. What is your opinion on the potential strike? As for my two cents, the short version is a sentence Dr. Phil uses whenever he's dealing with a pair of parents in an ugly divorce, the kind with mudslinging and trying to make the children choose sides. I'm on the side of the children. What made me pick this stance is that one of the union members said she hadn't seen her children in five days. Five fracking days. And as if the powers that be wanted to remind me of just how important quality time is, I just spent the weekend with three of my sisters bouncing balls of joy. We went to a bookstore, we played games and visited some local dunes. Just give them a ball and place to kick it around and you have an afternoon of quality entertainment. Which made me wonder, are the children of that union member getting these kind of experiences? Nope. Books. Sorry, can't afford them. And even if they could somehow scrape together the money, they can forget about mom and dad going along to the bookstore because they'll either be at work or asleep. And should they be awake, they'll probably be busy recharging for the next insanely long work day. The point I'm trying to make here is that these Hollywood jackasses are not just abusing the parents, they're abusing the children, robbing them of quality time with the most important people in their lives. Once your childhood is gone, it'll never come again. And for those stakes, I say, shut it down. Shut it all down. Let Hollywood burn in the hell of its own making. Best regards, Reuben Hilbers. Well, Reuben, what would I do with my time? How would I have anything to talk about if Hollywood was burnt to the ground? But on the other hand, I do think you have a point. Uh, the fact of the matter is that in Hollywood, we work insanely long hours in production because there's a lot of money involved and it's just a question of time. The reason we have 12-hour workdays up till now is that that's how much it takes to get the work that you need done in the time you can do it with the money that's available. The problem is, by cutting those workdays shorter, you get less done, which means you have to extend the budget on the end. You've got to add more days to the schedule, which costs more money. And when it comes right down to it, that's all that they're talking about here. What do I think of IATSE? So for those of you who don't know, IATSE is basically the unions. It's, a, it's actually a consortium of different disciplines that all fall under the umbrella. Depends what local you belong to. But everybody that actually works on set and works in post-production and makes movies. Now, this doesn't necessarily apply to producers who find the money. These are all the people that actually show up every day and make the movies, whether it's camera people, hair and makeup people, editors, sound mixers, designers, all the people that actually make the film. They all fall, fall under the umbrella of IATSE. I agree that the work days have to be shorter. I'm, I'm both a producer and I've worked on set. I've done both. I've seen both sides of the argument. Longer days are brutal for everyone. And like you pointed out, it's not just families, it's everyone. You know, the first day, the first job I ever had was, I don't even think it was a union gig, but it was Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, Leatherface. No, not the one with Renee Zellger. This was the one with Vigo Mortensen in it. And uh, Ken Foray, Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. Longest days I've ever worked. I worked six days a week, and I, would, I, I, would, I was so tired that I would get home, I wouldn't even get to my bedroom. 
uh, I fell asleep on the couch. One day, my college roommates, or my roommates at the time, I actually, I'd just gotten out of college, uh, my roommates had a whole dinner party, and I was asleep on the, on the couch the whole time. I was completely out, because it was, these are long, brutal days. Now, at the time, I was having a great time. I was 22 years old. Uh, I was loving life. Maybe I was 23. Uh, it was great. I was working on a horror movie. Life was grand. But it was a brutal time, man. Brutal. So it was really hard uh, to deal with. And then I've worked on many sets since then. And they're long, difficult days. And I am all for shorter work days, 10-hour days, have, having a real 12-hour turnaround, you know, where people actually are home. So you get 12 hours at home. I'm all for that. I think it's it's been a long time coming. And it's a necessary change in the industry, I think. And, and, you know, the real problem is nobody wants to pass along profits or money. They don't want to. It's, it's already expensive enough to make movies. Um, and the whole economics behind making movies is changing as we move over to streaming services and that kind of thing. And um, I'm all for it. Look, as a producer who's going to have to find the money at some point for my next project to pay my own crew, I even say, yep. It needs to happen. It is a necessary change that has to occur that is better for the industry. It's better, it's safer, and uh, I think it needs to happen. So, I'm for it. Yes, I am. Uh, this is actually a great letter. This refers, this is a, a letter all from, from our own Roberto Suarez, uh, who always helps with our our calls obviously this weekend we're going to have a i believe another zoom call another zoom call for all of you members anyone that supports the channel via memberships if you want to be a member we do bi-weekly zoom calls that last for hours where i'll sit down with you and you can just ask me anything we shoot the shit you can see people's faces it's a great time roberto usually sets that up so thank you roberto he's written this article or this letter but it's great dear rob it is no surprise to you that I have not been the biggest fan of Craig's run as James Bond. Which is why I find myself somewhat surprised at how much I ended up enjoying No Time to Die, flawed as it is. My experience of viewing the film may have been affected by the fact that I got to see it in the theater with my 19-year-old son, culminating his year-long introduction to the Bond film canon. However, I also think the reason I liked it is that similar to some of my all-time favorite Bond films, it uses the original Fleming source material to build its story. No Time to Die is, in essence, a remix of the novels Honor Majesty's Secret Service and You Only Live Twice, the last two installments of what is referred to as Fleming's Blofeld trilogy. In particular, it uses elements from the novel You Only Live Twice that were never used in the original 1967 film adaptation, now we get into spoiler territory. The novel on Her Majesty's Secret Service ends with the death of Bond's wife, Tracy, leading to Bond being depressed by the beginning of You Only Live Twice. To shake him out of his misery, M sends Bond to Japan to investigate Dr. Guntram Shatterhand, who lives in a fortress on an island off Japan where he grows multiple varieties of poisonous plants. Bond learns that Shatterhand is actually Blofeld, so he infiltrates the island and avenges Tracy's death by killing him. In the aftermath of Blofeld's death, the fortress is destroyed and Bond believed dead. In the epilogue, we find out Bond survived but is suffering from memory loss. He ends up in a fishing village with Kissy Suzuki, who is pregnant with his child. 
To piece back his memory, Bond leaves the pregnant Kissy behind, heading to Russia to search for clues about his identity. Several of these elements are remixed in No Time to Die, though Blofeld doesn't literally kill Madeline Swan like he did Kurt Tracy in Honor Majesty's Secret Service. He does manage to cast doubt in Bond's mind about her loyalty, so in essence, Blofeld ends their relationship. In his island fortress, Shatterhand Blofeld wears samurai robes and grows poisonous plants, similar to Safin in the film. Instead of going to the island to avenge Tracy, Bond goes to rescue Madeline and her child. In the book, Bond abandons the pregnant Kissy to learn about his past, and in the film he must abandon Madeline and their daughter in order to save them. In the book, Bond is presumed dead after the destruction of the island fortress. In No Time to Die, he actually dies. Other obvious references to Honor Majesty's Secret Service include multiple soundtrack cues from that film. The movie also closes with Louis Armstrong's We Have All the Time in the World, which is also a line Bond uses several times in the movie. And Bond's story with Madeline is framed as a tragic romance similar to Bond's relationship with Tracy in both the film and the novel versions of Honor Majesty's Secret Service. In summary, I believe that the bookends of the Craig era are actually the best parts of it, probably because both Casino Royale and No Time to Die have a fairly loyal grounding in Fleming's source material. If the films between them had been more standalone missions with some perhaps minor threads connecting them throughout these bookend films, I believe the Craig era could have been a much more satisfying overall experience. Thanks for taking the time to read and comment on these thoughts. I remain, as always, your friend in geekdom, Roberto. Um, well, that's uh, uh, amazing. And I will um, show a picture that uh, Roberto was kind enough to send along and I believe these are probably the original I'm not sure they they might be redone versions but um maybe there were yours or Roberto maybe you uh these are actually your versions uh which is quite interesting but here is the books the actual Blofeld trilogy now I would say uh I don't disagree with you. You know, from what I understand, you know, people talk about, if you go look this up, the original rumor of this movie was believed to be Shatterhand. And, of course, um, you know, Danny Boyle, the first film, or the first film, the first director on this movie, left uh, over, I think, tonal issues. They didn't, he wanted to make it more lively and maybe more tongue-in-cheek and more along the lines of past Bonds, but... Uh, Barbara Broccoli and Michael Wilson, I think, wanted to stay at a certain tone. But, um, yeah, I mean, my, my whole thing about this is, uh, well, I actually have another letter to read that maybe I should get into, but I think you're right. I mean, the elements that did work and the fact that they were taken from Fleming's novels was actually a great thing. And I did, of course, recognize some of that. Um, my only problem with all of this is... It's, uh, you know, the Bond films were, to me, like you pointed out, we never got to see a mission-based Bond. We go from the first two movies where he's a newly minted double O to Skyfall, which seems like we're 10 or 20 years along or down where, where Bond is a grizzled agent. So, so I guess, disillusioned that he gets shot off a train and rather than come back and finish the mission, he winds up drinking tequila in a bar, making money, being uh, putting a scorpion on his hand and betting with the locals. To me, that wasn't really Bond. Like, wh <laughs> why didn't you go back and finish the mission, James? Uh, 
So that was one of the things about Skyfall that really bothered me. And he comes back, and of course, there's no Mallory's like, there's nothing wrong admitting you're, you've missed a step. Like, when did he miss a step? And then, of course, you see what happens. And then Spectre was kind of the same thing. And then we get we get old Bond for three movies, and we never got a movie where you saw Bond. Bond was clearly enjoying himself at Casino Royale. Then he was bent on revenge in 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 uh, Quantum of Solace, and it just it felt like where where was the action adventure escapist fun of the Bond franchise? And people say, well, Rob, that's not what we wanted. I would say that Casino Royale uh, put us on that path, and what was missing was. I never got to see Daniel Craig. What I he's he's having a great time in Casino Royale. I wanted more of that, please. Um, but I, you know, I think it's a good. What you're pointing out is really interesting, and clearly, this idea was what was there in the script. I'm sure Purvis and Raid, Wade, the writers uh, who've been working on these films since Tomorrow Never Dies, probably thought a lot about that, and maybe they were working with Danny Boyle and his writer, and then uh, they they moved away from that, but. Um, it would have been nice to, to I think, have more of an action-oriented, escapist bond. Everything was so heavy. Um, but what can you do? But I want to thank you, uh, Roberto, for writing that article in, um, which I think uh, is, a, is a, great, a great article. Um, this next letter comes from... A man has no name. Man has no name. Nice reference uh, to Game of Thrones. Or The Man Has No Name, if you want to go Clint Eastwood. Dear Robert, this last Thursday I went to the very earliest showing I could to see the newest Bond film. I was excited to watch the movie, but I'm admittedly a bit of a novice when it comes to Bond. Growing up, there were very strict rules in my household regarding the movies we could watch. Not only was anything with an R rating a no-go, the same was true for PG-13 films. There were even many PG films I wasn't allowed to watch. I didn't see Indiana Jones for the first time until I'd left for college. My only exposure to James Bond growing up had been reading Casino Royale, with the excuse for my parents that it was classic literature. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. When I moved out, I began watching many movies, including five Bond movies, the four Daniel Craig films, and Goldfinger, which turned out to be my favorite. All this is to say that I'm certainly a casual fan of James Bond. I certainly don't have the lifetime affinity for the franchise that you do. However, I was excited to see my first installment of the Bond franchise on the big screen. It almost feels like sacrilege to call it a franchise. Even I, as a casual fan, knows that James Bond is special. It's not just another spy series or action franchise. It's an, in- it's an institution of cinema itself, lasting for half as long as film is a medium. The new Bond film is always momentous, regardless of the quality of the film. I left the film quite pleased. I didn't enjoy it as much as my favorite Bond films, but it was certainly in my eyes better than Quantum of Solace and Spectre. While imperfect, it was a strong note to end on, and as I understood it, no Bond had ever received a strong final outing. So imagine my surprise when I tune into your review 
and here you express your disappointment in the film. I wasn't surprised that you didn't like it, as it approximately one in every six critics didn't. I was surprised by why you said you didn't like it, that your reasons for disliking it were also your reasons for disliking Skyfall and Spectre before it. While I can understand wanting James Bond to enjoy being James Bond, for the films to not be as fun as you would hope for, something you said really bothered me. I'm paraphrasing, but you said the film was well-acted, well-directed, well-shot, well-constructed, that the filmmaking was without want. My first reaction upon hearing this was to quote the eponymous Green Knight from my favorite film of the year so far. What else ought there be? I wanted to give you the benefit of the doubt, so I decided to do a bit of homework. I didn't have a busy weekend ahead of me, so I purchased five new Bond films. Goldeneye, Dr. No, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, License to Kill in the Living Daylights, as well as the audiobook of Casino Royale, which on a side note is read terrifically by Dan Stevens. I've managed to get through a rewatch of Casino Royale, its audiobook, as well as Goldeneye and Honor Majesty's Secret Service. They're all a lot of fun, and I enjoy them all immensely for different reasons. I look forward to watching the other three films I've purchased, but I still haven't seen what it was that you were talking about. Why does James Bond need to enjoy being James Bond? In the novel of Casino Royale in particular, I got no sense that Bond enjoyed being himself, but that he was just unapologetically himself. I enjoyed Honor Majesty's Secret Service for different reasons than I enjoyed, say, Skyfall, but also for the same reasons. Honor Majesty's Secret Service was cheeky, fun, and adventurous, with a touching love story and a surprisingly well-executed ending sequence. Skyfall was tense, exciting, and dramatic, both featured performances that I appreciated. I feel Lazenby doesn't get his due as Bond, and Diana Rigg was one of the better Bond girls, totally earning the pathos delivered at the end. A contender for the best Bond girl was Judy Dench in Skyfall, and Javier Bardem was possibly my favorite Bond villain yet. Both films had memorable action sequences, engaging scores, and imagery that I won't be forgetting anytime soon. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but correct me if I'm wrong. But when you speak of these newer Bond films, you seem to be saying that they're good films, but not good James Bond films. This is far from the first time I've heard something along the lines of this. One needs only listen to half a dozen YouTube videos of The Last Jedi to hear that it's a good movie, but it's not a good Star Wars movie. I can only speak for myself, but I fell in love with Star Wars, with James Bond, with Lord of the Rings, and so much more because of all the qualities a film fulfills all of these aforementioned criteria. Oh, wait, hang on. Miss, miss, hang on. Let me say that again. I fell in love with Star Wars and James Bond and Lord of the Rings and so much more because of all the qualities that a film fulfills. These aforementioned criteria, and it could still be disappointing? Well, that was befuddling to me. I was discussing this with one of my, one of my roommates and using the example of Star Wars. He said that he looks for spectacle, connections to lore and escapism, on top of that, things that would ordinarily make a film good. He explained that he disliked The Last Jedi because he felt that it failed as a Star Wars movie for those reasons, despite him saying it excelled in ways that would have made any other movie great. I'm not saying he's wrong to feel this way or that you're wrong to feel the way you do about Bond movies. In fact, I feel like I'm the one that's missing something. Why do many of us expect something extra from our franchise properties? On one hand, I feel like going too far down that path will lead us to becoming narrow-minded, to us fans rejecting works of art within our favorite intellectual properties because they don't meet vaguely defined unimportant standards. On the other hand, going too far in the other direction may lead to our favorite franchises losing their core identities and becoming indistinguishable from many others. 
I don't expect you to solve the issue for me, but I certainly hope that the existential Mr. Rogers himself would be able to at least help me better understand that balance. P.S. Thank you for your kind words in response to my letter regarding how the Star Wars sequel trilogy helped me work through the traumatic events of my abusive upbringing. That letter comes to us from A Man Has No Name. Fantastic letter, A Man Has No Name. I guess I would say it like this. When I was a kid growing up and I started watching James Bond movies on the ABC Sunday Night Movie, James Bond was a guy that I wanted to be. Uh, I loved James Bond. I loved everything about him. You know, and, and he was an aspirational figure. Now, you know, in Goldfinger, when he slaps a girl's ass or something like that, did I necessarily want to have that streak of misogyny running through my veins as well? No. I did love the fact that from a very early age, I knew that I loved women and I loved that Bond loved women. But ultimately, you know, Bond was a man that took his responsibilities seriously. He, he seemed to be having a good time as he was saving the world. And there were moments where in Goldfinger, for instance, when he, Goldfinger has the laser about to cut Bond in half, one of my favorite moments in any Bond film is Bond is actually terrified. He's scared that he's going to get cut in half, and he knows he's got seconds to scramble around to get Goldfinger to turn that laser off. Because he knows he knows Arik Goldfinger wants him to die. And that's when Bond pulls out of his ass at the last minute. After, uh, he says, uh, Operation Grand Slam. And even Goldfinger's like, ah, it's just something you overheard. And Bond's like, but can, can you can you... Can you afford to take that chance? And Goldfinger turns the laser off and decides to spare Bond's life at that moment. I mean, I love that moment. I love that moment because it shows how Bond could think on his feet and he was actually scared. But to me, watching these kinds of things, I I loved this. Well, in Casino Royale, Daniel Craig is obviously, to me, having a good time. You watch it when he when he makes his second kill, when he kills the bent CIA station chief and says yes considerably after he puts a bullet through the guy's face. Um, and he's having a good time in this movie. And I, I've i always loved that about Bond, even though Bond is sort of an amoral psychopath who drinks too much and loves his women, loves driving fast cars and traveling all over the world and doing crazy things. I mean, I wanted to be Bond as a little kid. The Daniel Craig movie Skyfall... Um, Spectre and now uh, No Time to Die I, I felt like I was watching a character that I didn't like anymore and I, I know that some people because especially if you came to Bond later in life and you came there with the Craig era the feel of those movies there's not a lot of tongue in cheek I mean first and foremost to me James Bond was an escapist fantasy even, even the movies moved away as close as they might have been the earlier films Dr. No uh, Honor Majesty's Secret Service from Russia with Love. There still was, there still was an element of escapist fun to the Bond franchise that I feel it kind of is missing. And in my mind, that's what I wanted. I, that's what I was getting my whole life was that escapist fun. I mean, even if you look at Honor Majesty's Secret Service, I mean, I I grew up skiing, so I love seeing a good ski sequence, even if they're using rear projection. Uh, the music. The gadgets, the cars, P.S. Gloria. You know, there's a battle at the end when Hueys insert a, a strike team 
into Blofeld's base and they take it out, there's an element of wish fulfillment there too. Two, two groups of people battling. You know, Bond coming down the ice. Um, I, 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 I've missed that because I like escapist entertainment. And I, I didn't understand, like, why did the Bond films, why did they want to move away from that? And I get it. It was a different kind of a thing. But the, the, the escapist entertainment was sort of bled out of the Daniel Craig franchise. And they became sort of dour. And I never really liked that. So um, that's what I mean. But, I, 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 you know, James Bond didn't like being James Bond anymore. And I understand there was a realism they were going for, and, and that was definitely something that, um, you know, they, 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 uh, they, they, they intentionally did that. So the filmmakers, I think, were accomplishing their goal in what it was they were trying to do. It just, it wasn't the bond that I necessarily grew up with. It didn't mean that I rejected him, but I thought the films suffered because of it. I felt that Skyfall, and look, a lot of people love Skyfall, I felt Skyfall, Spectre, and now No Time to Die were a little dour, and they were kind of a bummer uh, from a from a standpoint where, you know, I watched Spy Love Me. When I saw that in the theater in 1977, I had a big smile from ear to ear watching that movie from the beginning. You know, Bond's in bed with a beautiful blonde woman, and then, of course, he leaves, uh, and it turns out she's a, a, an agent working for the opposition. He has just left... He has just left, and then you see Michael Billington, Billington say, over and out, and we get a great ski sequence. You know, I miss skiing, James Bond. They, they went into the snow, Inspector, and Bond didn't ski. I'm like, how do, you, how do you make a Bond movie, and he doesn't ski? But do people ski anymore? I don't know. Anyway, uh, what a great letter, though. I want to thank you for writing in. Please write in anytime you want. This next one, you'll notice a theme here, is from Chris P. Tenders. Chris P. Tenders says, I kind of feel like James Bond could experience humanizing and relatable character growth without becoming a wet tissue espresso depresso story. I think he could enjoy himself in fantastic scenarios and still be challenged in some ways, still face grief and personal shortcomings while maintaining his trademark suave confidence. It just takes skilled writing to explore those kinds of nuances. Anyone who's been alive long enough and had a bad day at the office can write a mopey, depressing story about dealing with too much crap and being tired of everything. Those writers just kind of write themselves. It's a self-insert for the writers instead of for the audience. People who say Bond written as an escapist fantasy is somehow a lazily written self-insert for the audience to fail to recognize how much easier it is to write directly from personal experience than it is to write successfully appealing to a broad, broad spectrum of men all fantasizing about living the ideal action-packed life. I think Bond has had humanizing and relatable nuances before without those films devolving into a sob story. We all want the pretty girl to be our friend and to live, and sometimes that doesn't happen, and we can sense a tinge of heartbreak behind that stoic composure. Maybe it hasn't been fully depicted as having progressed as the character in those escapist fantasy iterations of his character, but his trademark persona is a key ingredient in the fun factor of a James Bond movie. If he hates the crux of his own character, it's not the same character. It's the anti-Bond a heretical inversion of everything anyone who ever loved one of his movies loved. So who are these movies for then, if not the fans? I'd say the same applies to Spider-Man. 
I tend to feel bored during the first two acts of Tom Holland's Spider-Man movies, though I think they both have spectacular third-act finales. I just don't want to watch Spider-Man fool around with classmates. Not that it isn't cute, endearing, heartwarming, and all the rest of that gush. I just think the essence of Spider-Man is his awkwardness as Peter balanced with a confident and charismatic Spider-Man. I'm not so thrilled to sit through two movies of awkward and shy Peter and awkward and shy Spidey before he barely gets to gain any confidence in his alter ego. The essence of Spider-Man in both the comics and the better movies, which I actually like both Raimi and Webb's films, although I acknowledge their flaws where they exist, I think that the Spider-Man persona is his trademark. Raimi films depicted Spider-Man as awkward at times, but that was him on his days off when his other life was a lot to deal with. Most days he was still making goofy quips at his enemies. It's you who out gobby out of your mind. Here's your chains. Change, I guess I, you haven't heard, but I'm the sheriff around these parts. Goofy, confident, charismatic. Andrew, I think, struggled to make his Peter believably awkward. I blame the hairstylist for both films for that but he absolutely nailed the charm of Spidey's confident and humorous personality in both films. I know that he has great in-costume interactions with kids beyond Don't Play in the Street. Tom made a few good quips in Civil War, but in his own movies, his sense of humor leans into how awkward and uncomfortable he feels at times. Relatable to more kids than either 30-year-old Peter and the other two versions were, perhaps, but more realistic even. But that trademark persona is almost non-existent. I don't think that makes those Spidey movies bad. I did enjoy them. I just think that there's a key component missing. And I think that the movies would be much, much better if they changed that. I'd like to bring up the Halo series in reference to this subject. The studio of new creators for the series, who were handed a beloved franchise a decade ago that was for some reason intentionally made up of people who hated the series... Those people added two entries in which iconic, badass, somewhat comparable to Bond protagonist, the Master Chief, was changed to be more human and vulnerable. The Chief was depicted as a sad, mopey boy, depressed about his dying digital girlfriend, AI companion, taking every chance to whimper and whine about how hard it was to be an unfeeling robot who was drained of any semblance of humanity as a child who was taken and morphed into a biologically and cybernetically enhanced super soldier. He was no longer the one-liner spouting badass who had good relationships with his military peers, a gentle but confident soft side for his tortured AI companion, and a spirited outlook on taking all necessary action and kicking alien ass. The new keepers of the game series questioned people who hated Halo to find out how they could make it better. Those games were not for Halo fans. Now, after a decade of fervent and passionate community backlash, I'm proud to say that the Halo series has very transparently returned to its roots, and the new Keepers have addressed virtually every outcry the fans ever had cried out for a return of to the norm. And at the same time, they've been careful to include qualities that fans of non-Halo Halo games have vocally enjoyed, merging the two in a beautiful evolution that somehow strides the line of compromise and pleases both sides of the divide, doing what is commonly said to be impossible. In the announcement trailer for the new game, a scared Marine shouts, We need to run! And the Master Chief answers gruffly with gusto, No, we need to fight. And since then, we've seen a more subtle sense of sorrow about the fate of his AI companion, but not an ounce of the weepy, defeatist outlook he had previously under the new guard. I believe the same compromise between evolution of a character like Bond being depicted as a more dynamic and vulnerable character can be met. 
where he uses his classic qualities to deal with his somewhat, but not too much, relatable shortcomings in a way that both inspires men and still satisfies that escapist fantasy hunger in every man hungry for Bond. James Bond in his most excellent form, because while those problems are still familiar to us, we could never deal with them in such cunningly fantastic ways as the man with the golden disposition. What an interesting letter. Uh, well, I want to thank you for that. That comes from Chris P. Tenders. Uh, thanks for the letter, Chris. Look, I'm, I'm with you 100%, man. I mean, I feel the same thing is true of Star Trek. I think a lot of our franchises, they, people don't understand what they are. And we have these new creators. Look, I think it's a crutch to fall back on people's problems. I, I, because I think it's harder these days to write somebody that is a true hero. Uh, the deconstruction of our heroes has become sort of fashionable and easy because all you have to do is reverse what the character is. I think it's a lot harder now to write a great heroic, a, a real heroic character now that isn't deconstructed. I mean, that to me would be an act of defiance. Write somebody uh, that is, is truly heroic in this day and age. How, how can you do that? It's easier to make people more relatable by turning them into something they're not. James T. Kirk saying at the front of Star Trek Beyond, I'm bored of exploration. I don't like to be in space. We're never going to make a difference. I'm like, fuck you. Don't give me a Captain Kirk that doesn't want to be out hopping galaxies. Don't give me a Captain Kirk that doesn't want to be an explorer. You're missing the essence of what Star Trek is. I know we have to make him more relatable as a human being. I don't like this idea. What we're doing is we're turning, it's, it's the whole every kid gets a trophy. We shouldn't have kids that win for winning's sake anymore because, oh, that puts down other children. No, it doesn't. We need to live in a society where people are constantly striving to be better. We need to live in a society where we have heroes, where people will step up to the plate, where not everyone is bitching about, I was scared or offended or I felt bad watching this. Fuck you. I don't care about your feelings. I want a hero that's going to kick ass, that's going to save the goddamn day. We live in a namby-pamby society where all of us, we're all going to fail. The villains will win. We need heroes that are going to kick villain ass and not worry if they're going to hurt somebody's feelings. You know why? Because when the world is at stake or the universe is at stake, nobody has time to make sure everyone feels okay. Well, Rob, what about doing, you can do both, can't you? No. No, not when there's a ticking clock, not when a nuclear bomb is going to detonate inside Fort Knox. I want a James Bond that is not going to flinch. He's not going to be thinking about how he feels. He's only going to be thinking about stopping that goddamn bomb from going off and saving the world, saving America's gold supply. But, you know, now we have to talk about our feelings. This is problematic. This is why we have escapist literature in the first place. I have my own feelings. You know, I know what a... I, I know what a what, a, what life I lead. I mean, when I watch James Bond movie, I don't want to be like Bond's being like, eh. I remember, I've said it before on the show, a friend of mine does not like Anne Rice's interview with a vampire. He said because when he was reading it, he felt that Louis was always like, I don't want to be a vampire. Whereas Lestat's like, fuck yeah, you do. Being a vampire is awesome. <laughs> That's why the Vampire Lestat's my favorite book in the Vampire Chronicles because Lestat's, he's, he rules. If you're a vampire, I want somebody that likes being a vampire. You know? Uh, I don't want, like, oh, I'm undead. Don't want that. But um, there's got to be a, there's got to be, I think, like in your letter, sir, you've got to have a cross between the two. You know what I mean? 
You gotta have. You gotta find that balance. Uh, but we live in a society where too many people are like, they're not gonna save the world, and uh, I don't know what I don't know what we're gonna do about it, but um, it could be problematic. So, yeah. Anyway, uh, let's see what you guys are saying in the live chat. What, what's going on out there? You're throwing in tips and super chats, and let's get to what people have to say. Matt, Matt Gillamet, Gilgamet. I know it's like French, right? I'm mispronouncing it, but Matt says the written word is all that stands between memory and oblivion. Without books as our anchors, we are cast adrift, neither teaching nor learning. There are windows on the past, mirrors on the present, and prisms reflecting all possible futures. Books are lighthouses erected in the dark sea of time. Well, Matt, uh, that is a beautiful quote, and while it rings a bell, let me put this down and find out who actually said it, because uh, you didn't, um... so let's find out who said this. Jeffrey Robbins, uh, a lighthouse in the sea of time. I like that. Jeffrey Robbins said that. What a great quote. Thanks for that. Uh, Mazif Jada says, after Dune... The film I'm most excited for is Ridley Scott's Napoleon movie, Kitbag. I'm very excited for that Well, as well. Joaquin is the perfect casting and the one element of Skyfall. Oh, wait a minute. That's a different one. <laughs> Oops. After Dune, the film I'm most excited for is Ridley Scott's Napoleon movie, Kitbag. Joaquin is the perfect casting and the one element of the film that could be better than if Kubrick had made the film with some other actor. Hopefully, Ridley brings his A-game. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to Kitbag. I mean, it's weird that he's going from The Last Duel to go making a Napoleon movie. I have my um, uh, my Toshin book, the giant Napoleon book of all the material, all the research material Kubrick had, including the script. Um, you know, I do want to see it. I can't wait. I think it's going to be good. Uh, Ragnarok star. Um, and but you know what, Mads? If I think that he does have to bring his A game. I think Ridley Scott is on a tear. He's going, he wants to make. He's eighty three years old. He wants to make as much as he can with the time he has left on Earth. But sometimes, you know, he goes too fast. I think, and he's making things. I mean, I don't even know. Does he work with Pietro Scalia a lot, or does he just turn over the stuff he shoots to his editor, trust that Pietro will get it done, and then move on to the next film? Uh, I don't know. We'll see. But yes, I think hopefully it w Ridley will bring his A game. Ragnarok star says, "Hey, Rob." Just going through the Craig Bond films to prepare for No Time to Die, kind of upset they didn't release the IMAX version of Skyfall to 4K, I know. I missed my chance to experience it in 2002, and I'd say the 4K was our last opportunity for home release. Bummer. Anyway, I can't believe they made a 3D Bond film. I can't either. I hope they release it on Blu-ray overseas, me too, so I can buy it. By the way, I just wanted to mention the Lord of the Rings Extended Edition box set is $30 on Amazon right now. Great price for anyone wanting to snatch up all your hard work on these special features. Well, it wasn't just my hard work. It was the entire team at Curdy Pellerin. There was like 30 of us, and everybody was very, very dedicated, and I, I thank you for that um, because, as you all know, I do, I do love those special features. I think they're some of the best ever done. And by the way... The special features on The Hobbit are good, too. They're really, really, really good. Sometimes, in some ways, they're better. Uh, but check that out. Um, yeah. Terrier, all the way from Norway, Terrier says, I should have seen the Lynch movie first. 
No, New Dune was beautiful and so rich in detail, but the story and characters felt both bland and off-key. The sudden end was very frustrating. I uh, look, I agree with you. I I I think I didn't feel that they were necessarily bland, but I felt like we didn't quite. It was like where was all this going? Where was all of this heading? And I felt the Harkonnens, as much as I liked their portrayal, they weren't nearly as fun as they were in the Lynch version. I mean, there was a little bit more going on there, and um, I just felt like we didn't really know what was happening. You know, we didn't quite know exactly what was going on, which I thought was um, kind of a bummer. Uh, Stub McShave says, what are your thoughts on Starship Troopers as an adaptation? I think it's a good movie, but a bad adaptation. The movie does a sarcastic version of the book. Heinlein honestly argued that only the military should vote. The movie undercuts that argument. Uh, well, yeah, you citizenship came through military... You had to be in the military to be be a citizen. Uh, look, I I love Starship Troopers. I think it's great, but like you, I think it misses the mark as an adaptation of of Starship Troopers. But I think though that that as a satire and a jumping off point from what Highland was trying to do, I think I think it absolutely works. I'm a huge Starship Troopers fan, a huge Paul Verhoeven fan. Um, you know, coming on the heels of. He made RoboCop, and then he made Total Recall, and then he made Basic Instinct, and then he made Starship Troopers. I thought, all right, come on, man. You know what's up, son. Uh, I'm I'm a big fan. So I, I really like the movie a lot. And I just think it, the, the satire, I mean, there's not one adult in that movie that's somehow not either eviscerated in some way or, or, or living in some hermetically sealed house without any semblance of, of the real world. Uh, I'm a big fan. Uh, of Starship Troopers, but I, I do think you're absolutely right. Uh, Heinlein honestly argued that only the military should vote. The movie undercuts that argument. Well, but, you know, they, they, they do talk a lot about that your path to citizenship is that you have to do military service. So, I, I mean, I can understand what you're saying because they don't really get into that, but they do talk about that. They don't really are, they're not explicit about the voting issue, but they say if you want to be a citizen, you need to be in the military. So, Stubble goes on to say, do you agree that the ending of Dune reminded you of the last moments of Empire Strikes Back without a compelling cliffhanger? It was the equivalent of ships going away into space, but without the cliffhanger of rescuing Han and of Luke's ancestry. Yeah, it kind of was. I mean, I, I look, to be honest, I thought the end of Dune was quite shocking. Um, I couldn't believe how it just kind of left you there. Like, Really? Because then what do you, how are you supposed to, if you don't know the story, what is your takeaway? What are you supposed to believe? Like, where's that story going to go? You have no indication of, um, you have a bit of an indication that, that Paul Atreides is supposed to lead the Fremen at some point, but you don't know what's going to happen. They don't even hint, hint at it. And I don't think as much as I, I would have liked Charlotte Rampling more of her, because she was great, um, but you don't even know really that she works for the Emperor, the, the Shaddam the Fourth, and that that um all of that and i it's it's it was kind of a bummer but i i still think it it works kind of a superhero displays became a member superhero displays uh thank you for that i um thank you very much darth plato sends in a tip and says the changing of fiefs has a precedent in ottoman history which strongly undergirds the dune story yes uh, Suleiman had his sons, Mustafa and 
Mehmet change Sanjak's fiefs because the Sultan feared Mustafa's popularity. The Sultan ultimately had Mustafa killed. Oh, I agree, Darth Plato. There, there's so much in Dune that is based on real uh, Ottoman history, Islamic history. He did so much uh, research into that. So, no, absolutely. Um, it's just, you know, if you don't know that stuff, it's going to be hard to for anyone to, to, to know all about that. But, yeah, I, I mean, obviously there's a lot of stuff in Dune that, that really happened. Uh, I just wish that this new version of Dune delved into that more. I wanted, I wanted, if my one, my one big, um, my one big, um, um, criticism would be, I think the story is a little nebulous. Um, I really believe that. Thomas Ruffley says, Rob, thank you for your thoughts on No Time to Die. Mr. Bond's fate is definitely hard to swallow. I agree. I agree. Like, why would he let himself die? I don't know. Um, especially considering he could have gotten the hell out of there. Uh, but I know he could never have touched Madeline again, but wouldn't EMP Pulse destroy nanobots? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe they couldn't. Who's to say? Uh, Darth Plato says, Francis Stephen, husband of the Habsburg claimant Maria Teresa, was obliged to move his fief from Lorraine to Tuscany in order to please the demands of the French. Granted, Francis was not murdered, Yet this is a number. This is another example of changing fiefdoms. All that's very interesting. I love. I love all that. I love that you're giving us uh, the background. But I and I agree that changing fiefdoms is a is is a thing. But in the story of Dune, they're being forced to. The the Atreides are being set up by the Harkonnens and the Padishah Emperor. So I mean, it's not just changing fiefdoms. It's that they're being set up to fail. So yeah. Uh, Armani Martinez says, Hey Rob, you should read the article by the AV Club how Pierce Brosnan pushed James Bond forward and paved the way for Craig. It is a fascinating read. Ooh, I will I will do that. That sounds right up my alley. I'll totally do that. Uh, that sounds fantastic. Uh, Rick Squire wrote in and says, wrote in? <laughs> wrote in and said, I'm stoked to see Dune, but I wouldn't have time to read the full book prior to the 22nd of October. I generally like to read books prior to seeing film adaptations. How much would you recommend I read given that the film doesn't cover the whole book? Read through the halfway point. You know, you'll you'll kind of know. Read to the halfway point and um, you'll you'll but that's a good idea. Come on, you can bang that out before the 22nd. You've got you've got 11 days. Come on, man. You can do it. You can do it, Rick. Right back. Tell me what you think. Tell me what you think. Um, Harry Nice Guy says, great show as always. Have you already checked out the latest news about John Kent regarding his identity? What do you think? At least I was surprised. Well, Harry Nice Guy, I believe Jonathan Kent, you're referring to DC Comics, the son of Lois and Clark, how Jonathan Kent is now coming out in the comics, the new Superman, as being bisexual or gay. I mean, look, I, I'm all for representation, uh, I have no problem there, but it it does seem like I even have a friend of mine who's gay, who's I have I was having this conversation with him uh, the other day, and uh, even he, as a gay man, and he was telling me that he feels sometimes he thinks that it's being overdone, and he he feels like they're pandering to him, and I I don't know I can't speak to that, but 
in a way, I, I, I can understand where he's coming from. John Campion and I were having this conversation, and I brought this up to John. He goes, it's not pandering. Well, it seems like it doesn't, you know, um, it, it really, again, to me, it's all about the character and the story. If a character's coming out and you have a great story to tell, if Jonathan Kent wants to be gay or bi or whatever, and you tell a really great story about that, like, what's it like when a super-powered character comes out as gay, trans, bi, uh, non-binary? How, what, 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 what happens then? And how does that affect them as superheroes? Or does it? I don't know. I mean, again, I want to I wanna, I, I wanna read a great story with great characters. And... Um, uh, if they do a great job with that that storyline, then I'm like all for it. If the storyline's great, it all for me, it's always, always the same. It doesn't matter whether you're telling a story about someone coming out or you're telling a story about somebody accepting the mantle of great responsibility. Uh, if the story's great and the character's great, I'm all for it. Uh, a person's, uh, a, a character's sexuality doesn't bother me as long as their sexuality is intrinsic to the character of the story that they're telling. I mean, the funny thing to me is, you know, most superhero stories, at least when I was growing up, have been fairly chaste, and getting into their um, their sexuality can sometimes be distracting. So I would just wonder: is is their sexuality going to be? Are you going to make that part of a good story? Um, I don't know. Uh oh, there are people. I think our landscapers. I don't know if they're the ones next door or ours. But it's a good question, and um, I, I'll have to see how they deal with the character. Also, uh, and I hope it's great. Uh, again, if you want to tell me a story about a superhero coming out, make the story great. I hope you have a good story. Don't just do it to do it. Have a have a uh, have a good story to tell because I want to know what that's like. You know, I think coming out stories are fascinating. Everybody kind of has a different one, depending on how everybody reacts. Um. So yeah. So Harry Nice Guy, we'll be watching. Uh, Brandon Sheehy sends in a tip and says, Rob, Dune hasn't opened in Ireland yet, but I'm more worried than ever about the potential box office yield. Many commentators have mentioned it's doing well in Europe, but it only made $117 million here in a month. The UK and China might, uh, might not add much more. Well, it's true. I mean, Dune, it's got to make like half a million or half a billion dollars. We shall see. I mean, it is it is a very expensive uh erudite literary adaptation so hopefully it'll be great i hope it's great brandon goes on to say as a comparison the similarly similarly budgeted no time to die made that kind of money in its opening international weekend i think it will underperform in the u.s like most wb releases this year due to hbo max i mean where is it going to get that much needed box office i don't know i agree with you i would not have released dune on hbo max and denis villeneuve said so yesterday he was still taking shots at it being a theatrical release i'm like god good for you dude stick up for yourself damn it because it should be it should be a theatrical release i agree but i don't know man i i hope it does really well i hope it catches on i hope people have to go see it but it's not exactly a rousing crowd pleaser um it isn't venom <laughs> so uh we'll see what happens i hope it's good AJDZ says, love and appreciate what you've been saying about heroes lately. I love your singing, too. Play it again, Rob. <laughs> From Russia, with love 
I fly to you much wiser. No, I, I won't sing. Sorry. Um, I've traveled the world. Anyway, thanks for that. I appreciate that. Heroes have to be heroes, man. Heroes got to be heroin. Rhett Proctor sends in a nice super chat. Thank you, Rhett Proctor. That's very nice. Hey, Rob, I was wondering if you saw the new Resident Evil movie trailer. It looks way more faithful to the games, which they should have done to begin with. I wonder, Rob, if Disney will make a Kingdom Hearts movie someday. <laughs> Rhett, I would love... You know what? If they made a Kingdom Hearts movie, I'd be so there for that. I would totally watch that. That'd be awesome. Uh, man, I don't know if we, if they could actually... I mean, it's weird. If you see something like, like uh, Warner Brothers making Space Jam 2, it's like, wow. Could they... Wow. Could they get all those things together? Um, I'd love to see a Kingdom Hearts movie. <laughs> That'd be cool. Uh... But I did see the new Resident Evil trailer. It looked far more faithful to the game, but it kind of looked... I mean, I like the Resident Evil movies or B-movies or whatever. They're, some of them are fun, more fun than others. But this Resident Evil did look kind of cheap. Um, but we'll see. Jury's still out. Could be good. Could be good. Uh, but yeah, it looks a lot more faithful to the game, um, which I like. I mean, I think it's good. I like the, I mean, I like the Resident Evil games. And I, the movies are... B movies. I got the box set of Blu-rays. I mean, you know, they're not great, but I, I enjoy watching them as B as far as B movies go. Um, I'm in. Chris Maddox says in Blade Runner 2049, K's vehicle feels like a functioning piece of tech, especially as he's piloting it before the crash landing. Peak verisimilitude. Oh, I agree with you, man. I I. Blade Runner, the great thing about Blade Runner 2049, and I cannot, I cannot mention this enough, they decided when Blade Runner was made, the original Blade Runner, we did not live in our cell phone society yet, so with Blade Runner 2049, they, they, the computer slash analog future, they didn't try and go and make it our future, they made it the future of the Blade Runner universe, which I really, I really liked, I thought that was the, the best way to do it, and, um, Really, really, really enjoyed that. So I, I agree. Peak verisimilitude. I love that crash landing sequence. I think you're absolutely right. He, he, they do a great job. Uh, our own Roberto Suarez says, There were hints of humanity in older Bond films that used to be enough. I always remember the scene in The Spy Who Loved Me when Anya touches a nerve by talking about Bond's marriage. A small yet effective moment. I agree. And that's, I've said that the other day, uh, Anya is there sitting at the bar in Cairo. And, um, wow, there's a lot going on there. And uh, she says, uh, she says, marry just once. And then Bond's like, that's enough. And then Anya says, you're sensitive, Mr. Bond. And he says about some things, yes. And the way Roger Moore sells it, it's really good. I mean, I'm, I completely agree with you, Roberto. I'm with you 100%. Um... Richard says, are you familiar with the composers on DS9 and Voyager? Yeah, specifically David Bell. He didn't do a lot, but yeah. His some intrigue is happening motif has lingered in my ear for decades. Follower by obvious betrayal motif, and then I have a secret for you, and it's bad motif. You know what, Richard? Off the top of my head, I have to go back and listen to that, but I have a lot of unreleased, unreleased music. I'll have to go ch check that out. Um... I, uh, shh, don't tell anybody I have a lot of unreleased music. But yes, I, I, I will have to go. I vaguely know what you're talking about, but I want to go. I want to go listen to that right now. Um, 
Richard goes on to say, do you think they cut Femme007's plot down? She was so incidental that it almost amounted to intersectional fan service. She was kept a few hundred miles from all main and side plots until she was told to guard a lab for a while. I do. I think that there's a lot of No Time to Die that was cut out. I think there was a lot of Lashana Lynch's part cut out. And I think there was a lot cut out about what the genetic virus, I think that Safin was going to wipe out. It was going to be a lot. Uh, there's a moment where our, our Russian scientist looks at Naomi, looks at Nomi and, and says, you know, people that look like you, we can, we can kill, kill them all or whatever. Now, I had read books, stories about genetically engineered DNA viruses that were made in monstrous plots of racist fucks to kill large swaths of the human population based on their ethnicity that is i've read books with that plot and it seems like they leaned heavily into that and then they're like you know what let's cut that out we don't need that but um yeah uh i think that was definitely something that was in the script and then missing so yeah pod racing palpatine sends in a super chat do it do it. I don't know what Pod Racing Palpatine. You probably sent in a sticker. I didn't see it. Um, yeah, Insomatic says that I, I, yeah, he was, I think that was part of the plot. They were going to try and kill African Americans. I think that was definitely part of it because he says that at one point. And they, they probably realized what they were doing and took that out. They're like, uh, yeah, uh, I, I, I think that's kind of what they did. And then they realized, well, that's monstrous. So, uh, yeah, I now want to go listen to David Bell's scores. Um, uh, now I'm thinking about it because he did Enterprise too. Um, um, Regis K says, "Hi Rob, what would you like to see in a retelling of Babylon Five? How would you like J. Michael Straczynski to tackle it?" You know what? I have to say, my favorite reboot of all is Space Battleship Yamato 2199, which is a reboot of Star Blazers. I think it's the best one, at least the first season, 2199, is really, really good. So they basically retell the same plot, but there's, you know, new characters. They've just deepened the writing. I think if you want to know how they... Uh, they Look, tell J. he should just go back and redo the original plot, but delve deeper into it all. Make it a little bit more sprawling. Take your time. You've got more money. But, but for the most part, you're going to be able to, you don't have to end the Shadow War in the middle of Season 4, hopefully. You know, you could really take your time and, and tell, give us the story of the Shadow War that you wanted and weave in all the Psycorp stuff and all that stuff that happens in Season 5 earlier on so it doesn't seem like it's filler. Um, that's what I would do. Because I, you know, I love Babylon 5, but, but it's got problems. The fifth season has problems and... Abruptly ending the Shadow War has problems, so I would I would lean more into those things and draw it out more because he knows. Hopefully, he'll know. I mean, is he gonna have the same problem he had with the original show, not knowing when he had to get rid of well, when he had to get stop the Shadow War? Is he gonna be able to do that? I don't know, but I hope so. Well, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, kind souls, gentle beings, however you identify across these the twenty eight known galaxies, I'm going to bring Rob Observations episode number. 749 my god we're at tomorrow's episode 750 uh i want to bring this episode of observations to a close um uh 
Oh, Richard just sends in a tip and says, good to know that the Bond production team are the cynical, let's edit day by day based on the political climate types. I don't know if they did that. I have no I have no knowledge of that. I, I Sometimes, though, I, it seems like I felt like they did. It's probably better than the change ahead. The curve of history will inevitably blend towards us types. Yeah, you know, I mean, to me, embrace it. Tell the story you want to tell. Uh, I, I do think the people nowadays that stand up for themselves, like the Dave Chappelle's of the world, uh, you got to stand your ground. If you believe something, you got to stand your ground. Um, I really, I, I really think that that's that's true. Uh, unless, of course, you're wrong, in which case, keep your mind open. I would say. Uh, I want to, I want to, I want to thank everybody for uh, joining me here on this chat. I want to thank my moderators. I want to thank Darren Steely. I want to thank Louise X Sparrow uh, was here. Uh, I don't know who else is here, but uh, thank you guys for being here. Um, Darren, I don't see anybody else, but uh, if anybody else was here, I'm missing you. Thank you, moderators. Thank you, Blue Wrenches, for being the way you are. I want to thank everybody for supporting the channel via Super Chats and tips and becoming members. Thank you very much. We will have a bi-weekly members call on Friday. Saturday. And um, yeah, so that's about it. So this brings me to the end of Rob Observations episode number 749. My God. And uh, I want to thank you all for being the way you are. Oh, the Jughead throws in a super chat and says, Hi, Rob. I enjoyed the last Bond film. All I can say is that I'm looking forward to Mission Impossible 7, dude. Me too, man. I can't wait. I cannot wait. I loved the last two. I love Rogue Nation. I love Fallout. I can't wait to see what they do. Can't wait. Still have not seen Discovery yet, and I have no intention to do so. <laughs> I love and, res love and respect from the UK, bro. <laughs> well, the Jughead, thank you very much. You should, you know what? You, you know, you should watch watch the first couple of episodes of Discovery and, and, and see what it is that I hate so much. You know, and I always, I always encourage people to make up their own minds. Never listen to me. Uh, you should watch things because you might like it. You know, you never know. Uh, there are people that do and people that don't. But the Jughead, I want to thank you for supporting the channel in that way. And on that note, everyone, um, yeah, I would say this. Remember, every person you meet has a story to tell that you have yet to hear. And all you have to do is listen. And with that, I would say, have a better day. <laughs>